Hi everyone, we are Carlos and Daniela, hosts of Aula Divergente, and we are very happy to announce that we are launching our second mini-series. Hi Carlos. Hi Dani, yeah, it's a pleasure to be with all of you for launching this second season of Aula Divergente with a new mini-series, which is called Migrant Education, or... Educación Migrante. Yeah, that's in Spanish, really. <laughs> and we are going to explore, Dani the impact of Venezuelan migration in educational systems across Latin America and the Caribbean. But I think, Danny, that we have some innovations, no? Yes, Carlos, we have done a couple of things differently and I think are amazing changes. First, we are not going to conduct individual interviews anymore in this season. We have built discussion boards where we have invited people from different fields of knowledge, from the academy, from the government, from social movements. And we also have a second big change, Carlos, and I really like this one. We started the analysis from the basis of the experience of some migrants that have migrated and settled in different countries of Latin America and the Caribbean. And so then we discussed their experience within these discussion boards. So the results have been amazing. We have produced amazing knowledge and analysis from this situation. Well, Danny, this is amazing because, yeah, we will have, first of all, this experience from migrants And then we will explore this experience from different approaches, no? Philosophy, human rights, public policies, and of course, educational policy. In order to understand better both the challenges that the Venezuelan migration is creating for Latin America, and secondly, how we can act in a coordinated way to tackle these challenges. With that being said, We want to invite you all to listen to our first episode that is going to air on April 28th. Remember, Friday 28th, we are going to have our first episode. Go listen to us, subscribe in the platform wherever you listen to the podcast and subscribe to our social media. Yeah. So April the 28th for Migrant Education or Educación Migrante en Aula Divergente. Bye bye. This is Fresh Ed a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Today, we explore the production of global learning metrics inside the UNESCO Institute for Statistics. My guest is Clara Fontevilla, a British Academy postdoctoral fellow at the School of Education at the University of Glasgow. And another layer of complexity is that, to be sure, cross-national assessments are not the only source of learning data, but you have also national assessments. Harmonizing national assessments is even more complicated, but also you have to make a decision. Are we prioritizing national assessments or national assessments of, or none of them? So making all these decisions, yes, it's a technical nightmare, but it's also a political nightmare in many ways, because you are prioritizing different ways of proceeding, you are creating new responsibilities or mandates for countries, you are giving much more visibility to certain cross-national assessments, Clara's newest article is entitled The Politics of Good Enough Data, Developments, Dilemmas, and Deadlocks in the Production of Global Learning Metrics, which was published in the International Journal of Educational Development. Today's episode was recorded in front of a live audience at the School of Education at the University of Glasgow. I'd like to thank Matthew Thomas for organizing the event. Clara Fontevilla, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you very much. So we are here at the University of Glasgow actually recording this conversation in person. <laughs> A very enthusiastic crowd is here to listen to your research today. Here we are, Clara, to talk about some of your research. So I want to start actually with sort of unpacking the UNESCO Institute for or of Statistics, UIS for short. What is it? 
Well, it's a part, as the name says, of UNESCO that is in charge and is responsible for the production and harmonization of the statistics in education and the other areas in which UNESCO works. It is a quite an autonomous institute and it's a relatively young organization or institute because originally education work in UNESCO happened within UNESCO. There was a division of the statistics taking care of this. But for different reasons, after a period in which it was clearly the most trustworthy, the most reliable source of educational statistics, for different reasons, its reputation uh, during the 80s started to be eroded or overshadowed by the emergence of other organizations that were doing some work on statistics. So it was a bit of a crisis moment. And in order to fix this or regain invigorate the reputation of UNESCO's statistical services, there was this willingness to create a new institute, a semi-autonomous institute, more or less, with full or considerable managerial, political autonomy uh, in terms of hiring and so on, in order to polish again or revitalize the reputation of UNESCO's statistics. And to prove it was truly an autonomous organization and so on, it was even moved to Montreal in Canada. It's not based in Paris, the UIS is in Canada, to, let's say, give proof of this independent and so on. And it has really done the trick. So this semi-autonomous agency of UNESCO that deals with statistics, do they only focus on education or are they doing statistics across everything that UNESCO no, works on? No, so, they are responsible for any other areas, but it's true that education takes a lot of work in relative terms and the visibility that the education statistics have is particularly prominent. So it's true that in practice, everything related to education has a big organizational priority for UIS because they are judged on the quality of education statistics in particular, I would say. Okay, right. So education statistics become sort of key to what they're trying to do. Yeah, it's high stakes for them in terms of reputation. It's very visible, especially with uh, the advent of the SDGs, and SDG 4 in particular, the ability of UIS to deliver, to produce all the new indicators that were created, became a bit of a yeah, high stakes exercise for them because they had to prove that they had the technical capacity to do this. So maybe we should dig into sustainable development goal number four because in 2015 when this was promulgated, the SDGs, SDG 4, it was sort of the first time that the global goal wasn't simply about access. It was also about, quote unquote, quality. But of course, what does quality mean and how might one go about measuring quality it seems to be something that UIS would be particularly interested in trying to figure out. Yeah, with the advent of the SDGs and SDG4, there was all discourse and it's true that for the first time it was more than access, more than enrollment, more than completion, and there was this attention to quality. Some call it the learning turn or the quality turn and so on. This, to be honest, sometimes is a bit of an exaggeration. Other goals, like the Education for All agenda, they had an important quality component. There has been a preoccupation over learning for years, but it's true that it crystallized very clearly in the SDG4, this enrollment plus learning or access plus learning agenda, it crystallized with uh, SDG4. And this, for UIS, it was a good opportunity, but it was a big challenge for different reasons. But the thing is that for other areas of education related to access, basically, and other indicators, UIS has a pretty well-established relationship with National Ministries of Education and National Institute of Statistics. So the process is more or less runs smoothly. So they get the data and so on. It's a very routine thing. But when it comes to learning data, it is a bit more complicated because basically they need to rely on other data suppliers that are not necessarily national education ministries. 
I'm talking here basically about cross-national assessments. These are but also things and pills. So the uh, assessment consortia in charge of this, IEA or the OECD, but also regional consortia like the Laboratorio or PASEC or SACMEC. Now the UIS has to establish a relationship with them in order to be able to report on learning data. And it was a challenge because there was not this kind of relation before. Right. UIS as an institution had to build relationships not only with ministries of education and getting their data that was normally reported to UNESCO, but also find all of these sort of international organizations collecting cross-national data, build relationships, get the data. But then, obviously, these different organizations are measuring different things, right? So you have to then put it all together. Sounds like a technical nightmare. The fact is that there had been attempts in the past to do something like this, to start working on some form of globally comparable learning data. There had been attempts to this, at least since the late uh, 2000. Uh, there was the Observatory for Learning Outcomes, this kind of attempts to harmonize existing cross-national assessments, and so on. But it had proven difficult precisely because building this kind of trusting relationship with countries, with cross-national assessments, was not easy. With the adoption of the SDG4, this became an inescapable responsibility, basically, so they needed to find the way. And of course, it was a technical nightmare because these cross-national assessments, they measure similar things, but not exactly the same and not in the same way. They apply to different grades or different ages, so they partially overlap, but not in a perfect way. So it is complicated. And Another layer of complexity is that, to be sure, cross-national assessments are not the only source of learning data, but you have also national assessments. Harmonizing national assessments is even more complicated, but also you have to make a decision. Are we prioritizing national assessments or national assessments of, or none of them? So making all these decisions, yes, it's a technical nightmare, but it's also a political nightmare in many ways because you are prioritizing different ways of proceeding, you are creating new responsibilities or mandates for countries, you are giving much more visibility to certain cross-national assessments, maybe this kind of stuff. So it was a technical and political nightmare. It was not easy. It is not easy at all. How does UIS go about navigating some of those complexities, some of those politics, right, between these big organizations? Like I would imagine PISA, for instance, or the IEA want their assessment to be sort of expanded and picked up because they're getting something in return. They have an interest in doing that. But UIS might not only want to work with them, right? So how does UIS navigate some of those sort of tricky politics of global learning metrics? I think that one uh, big effort in this area has been creating a sort of infrastructure in which everyone is brought to the table. So there has been different efforts on that regard. The most visible and successful one has been GAMAL, the Global Alliance for Monitoring Learning for Learning Measurement. And basically this is a space in which cross-national assessments are invited, international organizations are invited, there are representatives from the civil society, there are country representatives, of course, and there has been this effort to make sure this is a democratic and open space, a plural one. It has not been perfect, and it has been criticized because it's not as democratic, as open, as inclusive as some would want, but there has been this effort to make sure this is an open conversation, it is transparent, with the expectation that this will facilitate some form of consensus building, even if it's a slow process, but I think that there was this willingness to make sure that, yeah, this doesn't feel like an obscure exercise, but it is open to the public, it is transparent, lots of documentation are producing, tracking every decision Gamal makes, and so on. So I think that this has been a big part of this atom. Of course, when you bring everyone to the table, what happens is that people have different priorities, different options, and of course, there has been different options that have been given consideration over the last five, six years. First of all, for instance, there was an idea like to create a new test for all the countries, like 
Alex Novo, something completely new. This was discarded because it was felt as not particularly realistic, riddled with implementation difficulties, so this was discarded. Then there were different proposals, and especially this big assessment consortium or international organizations in charge of regional or international assessments proposed basically to rely primarily on cross-national assessments and build some form of comparability to make sure that the data was perfectly comparable. This was another option, but of course the coverage of this is limited. Not every country participates in a regional or international assessment. And secondly, it was a bit problematic from the perspective of country ownership because in a way it was like incentivizing countries to prioritize participation in cross-national assessments rather than the articulation and construction of their own national assessments. So prioritizing cross-national assessments became problematic in its own terms. And I think that's basically what the UIS has eventually advocated for is for a sort of hybrid or flexible approach in which they maximize the number of data sources that can be used to report on learning metrics. So cross-national, national, anything. Anything can be exactly. sort of brought together. Well, with some standards, of course, yeah. and there is a whole regulation about this, but yeah, maximizing data flexibility. And this has been a way of combining this technical rigor, but also country ownership, capacity building, making sure that countries are not forced to go to a certain route and that this is not, let's say, trumping um, national priorities. UIS seems to have taken this sort of broad approach. Everything is acceptable, and maybe that's to get everyone on their side, not to sort of make any anyone too upset with the approach that they're going to take? Yeah, it's a way of maximizing coverage and country ownership mm -hmm. and not alienating any constituency because, right. of course, in, it was a, at some point, this was a, a bit of untested or fraud arena, so there was this uh, deliberate attempt to avoid this to have a paralyzing effect, no? Because different organizations want different things. That was pretty clear at some point. And, for instance, there was national assessments claimed that using national assessments to create globally comparable learning data was not technically rigorous enough and they considered that inbuilt comparability or perfect comparability was non-negotiable. Other organizations and some governments claimed that it was important to make sure that national assessments could be used to report on global indicators, again, to maximize country ownership, to make sure that countries are building their own assessment systems and not solely relying on cross-national assessments. So it was a way of avoiding this to become an obstacle or, or an impasse, no? And this attempt to create something hybrid, flexible enough. And this is how the idea of fit-for-purpose data emerged, no? So this attempt at pragmatism and rather than trying to be the perfect, be the enemy of the good, try to open a bit the possibilities. It's quite fascinating. So how does UIS then go about trying to harmonize these data sources, right? I mean, it sounds like I understand why they took this approach to not alienate anybody, to maintain country ownership. You know, it's politically, it seems right, and a good way to go, but also creates this huge technical problem then of you get all of this data coming in, and how on earth do you harmonize it to then say anything about SDG 4? Exactly. So this has been like the new challenge. I would say that the first challenge was to decide on which data suppliers, mm -hmm. and this was solved through this kind of hybrid approach. But then, of course, when you accept that, okay, many things can be used, you have a like new challenge, which was called sometimes the linking debate, because, yeah, you have to decide how you harmonize this data, because they had to be like charter or mapped against a common scale. But this means basically deciding, okay, getting an A in this test means getting a what in that other test. It means linking assessment. It was not easy it was complicated 
And again, different organizations were proposing different approaches to this. I will not go into the technicalities of this, but again, the big trade-off about should we prioritize technical rigor or prioritize a flexible approach that allows countries to rely on their own seeing and so on. And again, the final, I would say, the debate was settled in favor of this more flexible approach, at least for the interim, for the immediate time. Basically, they have been exploring different approaches. Rather than prioritizing a course of action, they are exploring, they continue to explore different ways of linking existing assessments in order, again, to not to alienate any constituency and see really what works better for everyone. So it has been this attempt to navigate. It's so fascinating to understand some of those negotiations. It's almost like diplomacy at this international level with so many different sort of groups of people with different stakes. I want to go back to SDG 4 because I guess something that is a bit unclear to me is what are they even trying to measure, right? Like they're trying to get all this learning data and create an indicator, but an indicator for what? To your question on what was quality and how we move from quality to learning, this was during the negotiation of SDG 4, the run-up to the final adoption of the targets, a big debate. And basically, there was a general consensus that we need to move from this single focus on enrollment and access and completion. There was some clarity on this and this willingness to, okay, we have to pay attention to quality. But then there was a bit of a cleavage or division in between those that prioritizing, okay, Let's focus on learning outcomes as a new measure that will make sure that we are not focusing too much on enrollment. Let's also try to pay attention to learning outcomes as a pragmatic solution to have another important goal. And other constituencies that fear that paying too much attention to learning outcomes would narrow down the agenda in the sense that other dimensions of quality would be, they fear that there was maybe the risk of not paying sufficient attention to other questions like of input, of the process, the learning process, and so on. And this was, again, a kind of a debate that uh, permeated all the SDG4 negotiations. It seems a bit obscure, but this tension in between learning outcomes and quality, as if it were two different constructs, but it was difficult to find a consensus. Finally, however, a consensus was found, uh, and we have uh, SDG4. But it was a bit of a consensus on the basis of ambiguity, because basically it was make sure that there is some language about uh, learning outcomes, there is also some language about quality in a more holistic or broader sense. But this was a bit of an ambiguity and a tension that very much shaped SDG4 and that became again very apparent when it was the moment to quantify SDG4 targets because then you have to decide, okay, but what do you mean by quality? Did you mean learning or did you mean process or what? So again, these kind of tensions emerged during the quantification of stage of the SDG4. I'm going to read the target. I think it's quite valuable to sort of think about how it was created and what it actually means and then what that might then sort of mean for UIS and how they actually come about trying to harmonize all of this data, link all these different learning assessments. So the target 4.1, which is people say that that's the learning target, right? It reads, ensure that all girls and boys complete free, equitable, and quality primary and secondary education leading to relevant and effective learning outcomes. So who made that target? It was a very much a collective exercise. I would say that precisely because there was this debate informing or shaping this discussion, it is this attempt to create an ambiguous enough statement. Some say that this is the product of wordsmithing, as they call it, so trying to refine the language until it is acceptable 
to all parties with different agendas. So yeah, I would say the product of this. And this is why sometimes people claim, no, the SDG4 reads so unnatural, uh, they feel so worthy, but because there was this attempt to, okay, let's make sure we have something everyone can, everyone, everyone involved in the debate can agree on or find acceptable enough. And so everyone in this case was member states that were members of UNESCO, and they were sort of negotiating this in the lead up to 2015? Yeah, the member states, they were part of the story, but probably the big biggest uh, tension did not affect it so much states, but part of the international organizations and civil society organizations involved with this. There has been some insider stories on how this negotiation went and all the difficulties of making mm -hmm. consensus, making progress. There is this uh, book edited by Antonio Wolf that makes a wonderful job in explaining all the intricacies of the debate. But basically, here there were different atoms at the very start, the very beginning of the post-2015 process, as it was this, as it was called. There was an attempt by some constituencies to promote a learning-focused agenda. And there was even, I think, that the Center for Global Development, for instance, proposed, like, let's have a learning goal. This was met with a lot of resistance later on on the part of some civil society organizations, the Global Campaign for Education, Education International, that make this point about the risks of prioritizing, of focusing too much on learning outcomes, no? Mm. And this is where the tensions started. And, and I would say that, yeah, finding this consensus in between international organizations was more challenging than finding the consensus in between countries. Interesting. So in a sense that the target 4.1 has the words uh, free, equitable, quality in it, but also the words learning outcomes, right? So it's like a nice compromise to have, to sort of have everything. But then the target has an indicator, right? So it's 4.1.1. And I'm going to read it out. Just I think it's valuable to sort of get this on record. So it's the proportion of children and young people, A, in grades 2, 3, B, at the end of primary, and C, at the end of lower secondary, achieving at least a minimum proficiency level in 1, reading, and 2, mathematics, by sex. Who came up with that well, indicator? Again, many people were involved, but basically during the late stage of the post-2015 debate, a group was created, the so-called uh, TAC. It was a gathering of people from different international organizations, of course UNESCO, but also OECD, uh, UNICEF, and so on. It was a group of technical experts at the start thinking about, okay, what indicators for the potential target, because at some point it was pretty clear what the target was going to be. So, okay, let's think about pos possible indicators. The TAC, this uh, technical group of pairs, was eventually expanded to include also representatives from the civil society, member states, and so on. It was called the extended TAC. And it was in the context of this group that more or less the indicator frameworks, including the learning indicators, were refined. But it was a very long process that benefited a lot from a lot of consultations. So it was really a collective exercise. Sometimes people tried, want to think that there was someone in a room making the thinking and making the decision, but it was much more of an, I don't know, a collective exercise. And this is this is why it was so difficult, because it, it is a truly collective thing, and this means making consensus among different agendas, different ways of thinking, not, not even an agenda, but different expertises, different backgrounds. So And so, I mean, it's sort of like making sausage, right? You're pushing it all together, and then it's like, oh my gosh, what do we do with it? So now the UIS is sort of in charge of figuring out how to get data to respond to this indicator. Yeah, I mean, of course, everything is a very collective indicator, but at the end of the day, the UIS is formally responsible for this, not only within the education field, but we have to understand that because the SDGs are a UN thing, 
UAS in many ways is held accountable also to the statistical community in the, within the UN, which means that, of course, they have this imperative to produce data on a timely basis, to produce rigorous enough data. They are in a difficult position in this way. I mean, they have at least two masters, no? The education community, which sometimes is much more in favor of these more pluralistic exercises and so on, but then they have also to report to the uh, UN statistical community, which has another uh, expectations for UIS. So they have to navigate these, let's say, multiple tensions. Yeah, we, we wrote a, a chapter with um, Sotiria Grec on these double imperatives, no? The UIS is facing these days between a democratic approach, but also a technically rigorous approach and so on. It almost seems like a mission impossible. And then the other thing that fascinates me is that, you know, so the SDGs were created in 2015. They're supposed to go to 2030. Today is 2023. And UIS seems to still be trying to figure out how to even get data to connect to this indicator. Well, I would say that they are in a process of constant refination or refining of the reporting standards and the reporting routines and so mm -hmm. on. And basically, they have been pushing for this approach that maximizes flexibility, that really puts a premium on country ownership, making sure that basically countries, depending on whether they already have a national assessment and already participate on across national assessments, are given different possibilities. But again, countries are put in the driving seat in many ways, and they are given the options to make use of what they already have, which uh, I think it's pretty important, no? rather than requiring having a new test or, or doing complicated things. Like, okay, let's make sure we are using whatever is in there, even if that in a way compromises sometimes or some claim that might compromise the technical sophistication of the final metrics. So do some member states report data already on SDG 4.1.1. And, and it's like it's publicly available to sort of see how different countries yeah, are. Yeah, there is a lot of globally comparable learning data going on these days. For instance, the World Bank, in collaboration with you, yes, as a matter of fact, but we also have this global learning poverty, the learning target, and so on. So there is a lot of data on learning progression going on. So yeah, when you think about how it was 10 years ago, we now have a lot of data, yeah. no? So by 2030, do you think we would be able to, or the global community would be able to sort of say something about SDG target 4.1 based on, you know, all of the data that's coming in and potentially in another seven years, even more data, potentially. Of course, whatever is the final say, I'm sure that some people will claim that it's not, uh, I don't know, strong enough. Or, I mean, there's always debate on what exactly are we capturing with these indicators. So the indicators are never perfect, and I'm sure there will be some discussion. But I would say that indicators cannot be perfect. It's inevitable. And I would imagine more politics to come, right? Yeah, I think that precisely the UIS feels quite increasingly more at ease with the politics, no? So yeah, it is a very politically volatile, Feel sometimes, but I think that they are working their way through this and avoiding the politicized character of the discussion to become a, an obstacle or an impossibility. You know, Clara, what I love about your research is that it's almost like you're pulling the curtain up to this process that really goes unnoticed by a lot of people in research or because of access issues, I would imagine, right? It's probably quite hard to sort of do what might be considered like an ethnography of a global institution. And in a way, you've sort of somehow managed to get into 
into that, some of those spaces. Now, maybe you weren't able to get into all of them. But I guess in the coming future, do you think we sort of need more of these ethnographies of global institutions? Well, ethnography is a very big word. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it's true that I'm pretty convinced that we need more uh, empirical research of the inner workings of these organizations. So rather than only relying on documentary analysis, which is very informative and it's not in its own way, but I think that we really need to open the black box of these organizations, so trying to observe how they work, to talk to the people working in there, actually, I think it's very important, and it would be very informative, and it would help us all refine a bit of our ideas about these internationalizations, because they are such so large bureaucracies, um, with many different interests within them, that I think that we really need to get a, a fine-grained understanding of the work. Thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed, and thank you so much for doing this in front of a live audience today in Glasgow. Thanks, thanks very much. Clara Fontevilla is a British Academy postdoctoral fellow at the University of Glasgow. Her latest article is The Politics of Good Enough Data. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Fatih Akhtas, Obafemi Ngunle, Annabella Afroboteng, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the ShockDev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.